You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Read together verse 51 through 58 of John 6. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray together. Father, it is before your word that we come now, and our desire is that we might learn from your word, truth, and more of you and more of Christ. Teach us what we do not know and make us a people of the book, that your word may rule our affections, our minds, our thinking, our desires, our longings, that we might be governed by it. And We pray that our time of study in it might move our hearts in that direction, that you would give us grace to obey that you would give us grace to know you deeper as a result of our time in your word. O Spirit of God, be our teacher, and may your word be our guide, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you've probably all heard the saying or the phrase, the proverb, that seeing is believing. You heard that? Seeing is believing. I think by that is meant that the proof is in the pudding, and I guess if you see whatever the proof is in the pudding that you believe as a result of seeing the proof in the pudding, I don't even know what the phrase the proof is in the pudding means. I know there's probably some sort of etymology to that somewhere. It comes from something. The proof is in the pudding. I should probably look it up. But if the proof is in the pudding and you see the proof in the pudding, then seeing the proof in the pudding, you would believe the pudding, I guess. Or maybe that puts all the metaphors together in a wrong way. But in the, it is true that in a spiritual sense, seeing is not always believing. Do you realize that? In a spiritual sense, seeing is not always believing. We saw that in John 6, verse 36. Though you have seen me, Jesus said to the crowd in John 6, you have not believed. They saw all of the miracles. They saw him in the flesh. They saw God in human flesh. They saw what he was able to do. They heard his teaching. They saw everything. They heard his claims. And they saw what he demonstrated to be true right before them. And yet they did not believe. But now I ask you this, for those of you who have believed on Christ. You have believed, right? But have you ever seen him? Have you ever seen Jesus? No, you haven't. We are those that Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. So we are the polar opposite of the crowd. The crowd in John 6 saw him and remained unbelieving. We have never seen Jesus in the flesh, and yet we have a belief in him, do we not? So seeing is not always believing. And seeing does not always make somebody believe, and not seeing something does not keep somebody from believing it. There are a lot of things that you and I believe that we have never seen. And we're looking at John 6, and we are seeing the difference between the crowd and how they responded to the teaching of Jesus, 
and the disciples and how they responded to the teaching and claims of Jesus. And we are seeing in John 6, Jesus basically sort of draw a line in the sand and divide these people into two categories. There are those who have believed, and there are those who remain in unbelief. Though they followed him and wanted to make him king, they remained in their unbelief, and they would not embrace him. The disciples are those who, when asked, are you going to leave me too, later on, they would say to Jesus, you have the words of life, where are we going to go? We have trusted what you have said, we believe that your words have given us life, so we have no other place to go, you, you are it. And we have believed upon you, and we have given everything, we're not going to leave now. And then there is the crowd who, having heard and seen everything, they have not believed. There's quite a, a, a distinction, and this, um, this contrast occurred to me this last week. There's a contrast between John 2 and John 6. Because in working through John 6, I keep going back in my mind to John 2, to something that happened in John chapter 2. At the end of John 2, after Jesus cleansed the temple and after the little confrontation with the Pharisees about the cleansing of the temple, John 2 says that those in Jerusalem who were with Jesus in Jerusalem at that time saw his signs and many believed on his name. Do you remember how John 2 ends? Even though many had believed on his name, John says, Jesus, for his part, did not commit himself to any of them. So though they had believed, and I'm using that, and I put little air quotes in that, though they had believed in Jesus after a fashion or in a sense, Jesus did not, and the same word is used, believe upon them or commit himself to them. Though they had committed themselves to him or believed upon him in a sense, Jesus, for his part, did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in man, John says. He knew their hearts. He knew why it is that they came to him. He knew that those did not belong to him. And he did not commit himself to them. Now I'm contrasting that in John 2 with what we read in John 6. There are some in John 6 who have believed upon Jesus. And he describes a group of people who had believed and would believe. And now I ask you this question. Did Jesus, for his part, entrust himself to them? Did Jesus commit himself to those who believe in John 6? Yeah, you say you do, right? Remember all that we have seen in John 6 about what Jesus does? All that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I will receive them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And all of those who come to me, of all that the Father gives to me, they will come, and I will keep them, and I will secure them, and I will lose none of them, but I will raise them all up on the last day. Is that a commitment? And Jesus said, the life that I am going to give for those who come to me The life that I will give to them I will purchase by giving my flesh to die in their place for the life of the world. That which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So in John 6, to those who believe, the promise is this. I will receive you. I will keep you. I will secure you. I will give you life. I will give my flesh for you. And I will raise you up on the last day. Contrast that with John 2. They believed on him, but Jesus did what? He wasn't committed to them at all. What is the difference between those two groups of people? One group was given to him by the Father, and he has committed to them. In fact, he has committed everything to them. The other group who believed on him after a fashion, is not committed to them at all. He did not entrust himself to them because he knows what's in their heart. One group of people belongs to him. One group of people does not. There is a belief that saves, and there is a belief that damns. Now, last week we looked at John chapter 6 because the context has to do with belief and we examined whether John 6 has anything at all to do with the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass. And I said to you, I don't believe that it has anything to do with the Roman Catholic practice of the Mass or communion at all. And I gave you a a number of reasons why I don't believe that that is the case. And so now we have to answer the question, what then does John 6 have to do with? What is the eating and drinking of the flesh and the blood of Jesus that is spoken of in John chapter 6? If it has nothing to do with Roman Catholic Mass, 
what does what is Jesus talking about when he says you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? And I gave you a brief answer to that last week because I didn't want to leave you hanging. I said that the eating and drinking is synonymous with belief. So today we're going to cash that out a little bit. I'm going to show you from the context and from the whole argument of the passage why the eating and drinking there has to do with belief. I mentioned last week something that I need to clarify, and for those of you with a little bit of a Roman, it was somebody who who was raised in a Catholic background that mentioned this to me, and so I want to clarify something. I said to you that communion and John 6 have this one thing in common, that both of them point to something else. Both of them point to the cross. Both the practice of communion and John 6 point to something else, that is the cross, and they both speak of the cross, but in different ways. Jesus in John 6 describing what that would do for those who believe. Uh, communion reflects and directs our hearts and our affections and our minds and our, our, our spiritual eyes to the cross. And somebody of the Roman Catholic background said, well, you need to make sure that people understand that you are, you are talking about the proper observance of communion and not Mass. Because Mass does not direct our affections to the cross. And that's true. The proper understanding of communion directs our attention to the cross. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass does not. And here's why. In Roman Catholic theology, Mass is not something that directs our hearts and affections to something else. It is an end in itself. Remember, it is a propitiatory sacrifice that forgives sins. It is something where the elements are transfigured or transformed before us that is worthy of being worshipped. Mass is not intended in Roman Catholic theology or practice to direct our hearts and affections to the cross. Mass is intended in Roman Catholic practice and theology to receive our hearts and affections in and of itself because it is an event and an end in itself, not something intended to direct our affections to something else. All right, so now we have to ask the question, if the eating and drinking in John chapter 6 does not refer to communion, if it does not refer to mass, if it is not to be taken literally, then to what does the eating and drinking of the flesh and blood of Jesus in John 6, to what does that refer? It should be obvious to anybody with, I was going to say something cruel there, it should be obvious to all of us that you can't take the passage in a strictly literal sense. Jesus cannot be speaking literally. If he were, he would be endorsing cannibalism. The eating of flesh and the drinking of blood. He would be endorsing cannibalism, which would be reprehensible to the Jews and contrary to their law. And it should be obvious to us that you can't be taken literally because to say that Jesus is saying that cannibalism brings eternal life is contrary to everything else in Scripture. So we can't take it in a literal fashion at all. I was reading one defense of Roman Catholic Mass online on a prominent Roman Catholic website. And the guy who was, and he was defending Roman, the Roman Catholic view of Mass, and he said this. We ought to take John 6 in a strictly literal fashion because that's how Jesus intended those words to be taken. And how is it that we know that Jesus intended those words to be taken literally? Well, you can see in verse 52 that the Jews who heard Jesus took him literally. Do you notice that in verse 52 of John 6? Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And this, this writer said, Since the Jews understood that that's what Jesus was saying, and they took him in a literal fashion, that's how they understood him to be speaking literally. You and I ought to understand him in the same way. If the original audience understood him that way, you and I should understand him that way. Who are we to say 2,000 years later that it shouldn't be taken literally when the original audience took him literally? Did you catch that? You know what's wrong with that? The fact that hostile, unbelieving, unrepentant Jews misunderstood Jesus should not incline us whatsoever to adopt their interpretation of what he said. They did take him literally. But that, just because they took him literally doesn't mean that we should. As it turns out, they misunderstood his intention. 
And Jesus clarifies what he means, and he says it in a way that I think you and I ought to understand it, not in a literal fashion, but as an analogy, a metaphor of belief, not of eating and drinking the flesh in a literal sense. All the way through the Gospel of John, by the way, there's a pattern of people taking what Jesus says and understanding him in a literal sense when he didn't intend to that. Back in John chapter 2, for instance, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What was Jesus speaking of? Speaking of the temple of his body. And the Jews who were standing there heard Jesus and they said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? How did, how did they understood him? They took him in a literal sense. Did he intend it to be taken literally? He wasn't intending it to be taken literally. In John chapter 4, when Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give to you living water. How did the woman at the well understand what he was saying? Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and he drank from it and his household and his cattle? Give me this water so that I will not have to come here to draw again. She understood him literally, but was he speaking in literal terms? He wasn't at all. Later on, John chapter 4, when Jesus said to the disciples, I have food to eat that you don't know about. What was he speaking of? Doing the will of the Father. Did the disciples get that? The disciples didn't get that. Food to eat, we don't know about. Where did he get this food? Did you bring him food? I didn't bring him any food. Where did you get food to eat? They didn't understand him in a literal sense. Even Nicodemus, John chapter 3. You must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. And what did Nicodemus say? How can a man be born a second time? Must he enter into his mother's womb and be born all over again? Nicodemus understood him in a strictly literal sense. Same thing in John chapter 6. You have to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, and if you do that, you will have life. Did Jesus intend to be taken literally? Or was he speaking, as he spoke in John chapter 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, in a metaphoric and analogous sense? It is an analogy. All right, so if the eating and drinking doesn't refer to mass, what to what then does it refer? It refers to belief. And there, I would offer you two basically primary proofs that the eating and drinking refers to belief and is not to be taken literally. The first proof is this. What is one of the results of eating and drinking the flesh of the Son of Man? There are two of them in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. One of them is eternal life. The person who eats and drinks has eternal life. So look at John chapter 4, sorry, John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread and came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Now what type of living is Jesus speaking of? It is eternal life, the same eternal life he's been describing all the way through the whole bread of life discourse. He is speaking of living and living eternally, being raised up. The person who eats and the person who drinks has eternal life. Look at verse 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. There it's stated negatively. In verse 51, positively. If you eat and drink, you have life. Verse 53, negatively. If you eat, if you don't eat and drink of Me, you don't have life. In verse 54, He states it positively again. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life. So what is it from the context that brings eternal life? It's eating and drinking the flesh of the Son of Man. What is it from the rest of the context that brings eternal life? Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So what is it that brings eternal life in John chapter 6? It is belief, and it is eating and drinking the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. Now listen. Either those two things are two ways of salvation, two paths of salvation, or those two things are synonymous and are speaking about the same thing. I would submit to you that those two things are not two paths of salvation, but that those two things are synonymous. It is he who eats and drinks who has life. It is he who believes has life. The same results from two not separate causes, but two synonymous causes 
the eating and drinking is the same as believing. In fact, you're going to see in a moment that the eating and drinking is a perfect analogy for what the type of faith that Jesus is speaking of really is. It is a perfect analogy, a perfect metaphor for the type of belief that he's speaking of. Well, there's a second thing in the context that shows us that the eating and drinking is not literal, that it is spiritual or symbolic, metaphoric, if you were, and that is at the end of verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So how is it that somebody is raised up on the last day, according to verse 54? They eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, right? The one who eats the flesh and drinks the blood is what? Is raised up on the last day. Have you seen that phrase somewhere else in John chapter 6? We've seen it three other times, haven't we? We saw it up in verse 37. Uh, sorry, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. We saw the same phrase in verse 40, that he who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We saw in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Now the reference to being raised up on the last day in verse 54 connects everything Jesus is saying about eating and drinking with everything we have seen in the context. Who is it that is raised up on the last day, given eternal life, and raised up to bodily resurrected life forever? Who is it? It is those whom the Father gave to the Son, whom the Son receives, whom the Son secures, whom the Son gives life to them, whom the Father draws to the Son, whom the Son commits Himself to their salvation, that is the one who is raised up on the last day. It is also, that group of people is also described in verse 54 as those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. It's the same group of people being described. Those whom the Father gave to the Son and the Son secures and loses none and raises them all up, that is the type of people, the type of faith they have is the faith that is like eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking His blood. So how is it that one is raised up on the last day, according to verse 54? They eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. But from the rest of the context and the other references to being raised up, how is one raised up? Verse 40, by beholding the Son of Man, by beholding the Son and believing on Him. Now I would submit to you that either the eating the flesh and the drinking of the blood and the beholding and believing are two different paths of salvation or the two things are synonymous since they both result in being raised up at the last day. Jesus, with the eating the flesh and drinking the blood analogy, is speaking about the type of belief it is that saves. All the way through the Gospel of John, we have seen that there is a belief that damns and there is a belief that saves. There is a belief which is merely an intellectual assent that does not change the heart, it does not change the mind, it does not change anything about the life at all. It is merely an embracing and holding Christ at a distance. Coming to him for the signs of the benefits. We've seen that all the way through John chapter 6. And then there is a belief that takes Christ for himself and says, I will have him. And brings Christ into his life, into his heart, into his very being. Jesus is describing here with the analogy of eating the flesh and drinking the blood, this second type of belief, the type of belief that actually saves. And eating and drinking is a perfect, a perfect analogy of the type of belief that Jesus is describing. Let me give to you, and I'm gonna, I, I've got five, I've got five similarities, and you're probably gonna be able to think of other similarities between eating and drinking and actual belief. But let me offer to you five similarities between those two things, and you'll see how eating and drinking is a perfect analogy. First, in order for food to, in order for somebody to receive benefit from food, they must be eaten. It must be eaten. Food must be eaten before you can receive a benefit from it. Food will do you no good if it remains in the pantry, right? Food will do you no good if it remains on the stove. It can even be fully cooked. 
Food will do you no good if it stays on your plate in front of you. In order for you to receive the benefit from food, what do you have to do? You have to eat the food. It does you no good to philosophize about the food. You can believe that the food exists and that it is there. You can talk about the food. You can sing about the food. You can examine the food. You can hold the food at arm's length. You can adore the food. You can appreciate the benefits of the food. You can watch your neighbors eat the food and appreciate all of the benefits that they receive from the food. You can even say, personally, I'm not personally opposed to food. I just don't think that that food is for me. You can admire the food. You can research all of the benefits and the nutritional facts about the food. You can study the food all day long, even under a microscope. You can wax eloquent about the food. You can gather together with other people who appreciate food. And you can sing about the food together. But listen, unless you take the food and personally eat the food yourself, you can receive no benefit from it. Now, many of you are smiling because you already see the parallels, right? So it is with Christ. You can sing about Him. You can study Him. You can analyze Him under a microscope. You can keep Him at arm's length. You can believe that He existed. You can affirm the historical doctrines of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. You can read the New Testament about Christ. You can sing about Him. You can worship Him. You can adore Him. You can appreciate all the benefits that your neighbors receive from Christ Himself. And you can even say, I believe that He existed, but personally I'm not opposed to Christ. I just don't think that He is for me. And you can gather together with other people who have affections for Christ, but unless you take Christ yourself, and personally receive Him into yourself as your own, you will receive absolutely no benefit from Him whatsoever. A second perfect analogy between food and belief is that eating is a personal thing. Eating is a personal thing. If I don't have time this afternoon, I can't say to my wife, look, I'm really busy, so while you're eating, will you eat a little bit for me too? And I have to personally eat the food myself. I can't have somebody else do it. Nobody else can eat food for me on my behalf. I have to do it. I can't trust in my kids eating food for me or my wife eating food for me. Nobody can eat food by proxy. You can't have somebody else do it. And so it is with Christ. You cannot trust in your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or your pastor's faith or anybody else's knowledge of Christ on your behalf. Just as eating is a personal thing, an individual thing, that cannot be done by somebody else for you, so is faith and trust in Christ. That faith and trust in Christ must be mine, it must be personal, it must be owned by me. I cannot trust in somebody else's faith to avail for me on the Day of Judgment. My children cannot trust in anything that I have done to avail for them on the Day of Judgment. They will stand before God, and their faith in Christ and trust in Him will deliver them. Not mine. Not mine, even though I'm a pastor. It's not going to be my faith that avails them. If I could believe on behalf of everybody else and save everybody else, I would. But I can't do that. Everybody else must believe. Faith, just like eating, is a personal thing. It's personal. Second, eating is a response to a felt need. Eating is a response to a felt need. Now, granted, oftentimes we eat in response to the wrong felt needs. That's unnatural and it's wrong. And it can be idolatrous. Sometimes we eat because we're lonely. We eat because we're anxious. We eat because we're worried. We eat because we can't sleep. We eat because we, for a hundred other reasons. But naturally, we are geared to eat because we are hungry. And if we are not hungry, we should not eat. And if we do eat, we ought to eat in response to that felt need. Um, if you have no felt need of hunger, you likely do not want any food, right? Just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving, you likely ate far more than you would on any other normal day of the year, except for Christmas and Fourth of July and Memorial Day and Labor Day and... New Year's Day and Easter, 
But other than that, you probably ate more on Thanksgiving than you normally eat at your average meal. Reason being is because there is more food available to you and a greater selection of food, right? And then you probably have to go to multiple people's houses for Thanksgiving to celebrate that, and everybody wants to feed you a big feast, and so you eat all this food. So at our church, at our house, at our house, we did what we normally do on Thanksgiving. We sat down, and we ate a big meal, and we enjoyed it all together. And then we did in the afternoon what we always do on, fall, on Thanksgiving: we watched football. Didn't play football, we watched football. And that spent up the whole afternoon, and I rest, and you know, kind of doze in and out, and enjoy all the stuff that you do on Thanksgiving, and watching football, and skipping through the commercials, and having fun. Came to be evening time, and I said to my family, "Okay, who's ready for dinner?" And Deidre looked at me and said, I can't even think about eating. Because she was still full. So was I. I was still full. We were all still full. Except the kids. They never overeat. They're always hungry. But the rest of us were still full. And I could tell from the expression on Deidre's face that the very thought of food nauseated her. When you are full, full, and you feel like you cannot eat another bite, and somebody places before you a plate of food, does that entice you whatsoever? Somebody can even put a dessert in front of you, and on on any other day, under any other circumstances, hunger, it would almost be irresistible to you if you're hungry. But if you're full, a piece of cheesecake almost nauseates you, right? Because eating is a response to a felt need. So it is spiritually. Those who are full and satiated and filled up with their sin and love their sin and desire their sin and are full of their sin have no appetite whatsoever for righteousness. No appetite for righteousness. They hate righteousness. Christianity is a myth to them. Forgiveness of sins is a joke to them. The idea of a bloody crucified Messiah is lunacy and foolishness to them. It's a stumbling block and foolishness. But once somebody is made to feel their spiritual hunger and made to feel their spiritual thirst, once somebody is made to sense their danger under the wrath of God for their sin, then they will find the bread of life appealing. But as long as they are full of their sin, they will find no hunger or thirst for righteousness or the bread of life. A fourth similarity between eating and believing is that eating is an active appropriation of something. When you eat something, it becomes part of you. Right? What you eat is you. You realize that? What you eat is you. Stop eating and you will soon find that there is less of you. You eat too much and you will soon find that there is more of you. Not more of you in numbers, but more of you in, in uh, quantity. Right? Because what you eat becomes you. In the digestive process, what is taken into you in eating... It's quickly turned into the substance of your being. It is digested and it becomes part of you. It becomes part of your makeup. It becomes the energy and food for your cells. It becomes proteins in your being. It is digested by you and becomes part of you. So it is spiritually. When you take Christ into yourself by the type of belief that Jesus is talking about, He becomes part of you. And you become part of Him. And there is an indispensable and unbreakable eternal union that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. So much so that Scripture can speak of us being in Christ and Christ being in us. There is a union that exists so that the true believer does not hold Christ at arm's length. The true believer is part of Christ and Christ is so much a part of Him that that union is indispensable and unbreakable and it is eternal. And it can never be pulled apart again because when we take Him into ourselves, He becomes part of us. So that now no longer do I live for myself, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So that Christ is in you and I, the hope of glory, and He dwells in us in the person of the Spirit, and He is so much a part of us now that there is union between us and Him. A union that we're going to look at in more detail next week because it's one of the results of believing. You see it in verse 56. A fifth similarity between eating and believing is that when you eat, you can feel the benefits of eating, can't you? 
When you eat, you feel the benefits of it. If you're hungry and you eat, once you eat, you feel refreshed, you feel fuller, you feel satisfied, you feel content. Once you eat, you feel the benefits of it. So it is with Christ. When you take Christ into yourself, you feel instantly the benefits of it. You know that you have peace with God and a clean conscience and your sins are forgiven. You suddenly realize that you have an understanding of Scripture and a hunger for righteousness and a hunger for Him and a desire for worship and a love for Christ. Your affections have changed. The minute somebody is born again, everything about them changes. They become a new creation. And the results and the effects of that regeneration and that salvation are instantaneous. So do you feel the benefits immediately of your salvation? Because you know immediately that you have received forgiveness of sins. And you are transformed immediately. Those are the five analogies, or at least five similarities, between eating and believing. Food must be eaten in order to receive the benefit. Eating is personal. Eating is a response to a felt need. Eating is an active appropriation of something, and you feel the benefits of eating. So you can see the similarities. You can probably come up with other similarities between eating and believing. But Jesus is not speaking in this passage about the type of belief that holds him at arm's length. That was the crowd. Give us the benefits. We will make you king if you give us free food. We just don't want you to rule over us in a personal sense. We want you to provide us with benefits. We just will not bow the knee to you and trust you and embrace you and receive you as you offer yourself to you. Just give us the benefits. That was the crowd's belief. Jesus is describing the type of belief that doesn't hold him at arm's length, but actually embraces him and brings that belief and that person into them and accepts him for who he is and trusts in him and casts all the hope and confidence on him. The analogy of eating and drinking the flesh of the Son of Man and the blood of the Son of Man is a perfect one for describing the type of belief that Jesus is talking about. And with this analogy, he is drawing a line right through this crowd of people. And he's saying there are some people who are not going to believe in me in this sense, and there are some people who will believe in me in this sense. But you should not think that if you have held Christ at arm's length, that you have any part or parcel in him, or that he has any part or parcel in you. It is only when you take him like you take food into your very life and being. That is the type of belief. That is the type of trust that saves. J.C. Ryle says, Our soul feeds on Christ's sacrifice by faith just as his body would feed on bread. Believing he is said to eat, believing we are said to drink, and the special thing that we eat and drink and get benefit from is the atonement for our sins made by Christ's death for us on Calvary. End quote. That is the belief and that is the that is the belief. Belief is eating and drinking. That is what eating and drinking is. It is belief and trust in the Son of God. Remember, in the entire context, Jesus has been describing belief, right? He's been describing belief. And those, that's the analogy that he gives. Grab a hold of me and take me into your being, just like you do food. Now, I would ask you this. Have you done that? Does this type of eating and, does this type of belief, eating and drinking, does that describe your belief in Christ? Or have you held Christ at arm's length? Are you trusting in somebody else to eat and drink on your behalf? I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised by Christian parents. Their belief is sufficient for me. I've gone to church all of my life. Is that the type of belief that you have? Is your entire Christian life characterized by simply holding Christ at arm's length, singing about Him, adoring Him, meeting with people who do love Him, but holding Him at arm's length? Or are you a Christian in the sense that you have grabbed a hold of Christ and embraced Him and brought Him into yourself? I would say this to you, if you have remained unchanged, you have remained unsaved. If you have remained unchanged, you have remained unsaved. Nobody can be born again and given newness of life and not be transformed by that faith. If you remain unchanged, you remain unsaved. Don't be deceived. There are two types of believers. 
And one of the reasons we are given John 6 is that you and I might analyze ourselves and say, have I trusted Christ in that sense? Or have I simply held him at arm's length and asked him for benefits? Why have I come to him? Our time for this morning is up, or at least I've reached the end of the sermon. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of homework. I don't do this often, but here's your homework. Next week, we're going to look at the four benefits of believing on Christ that is contained in verses 52 to 58. We're going to look at four benefits that are there. That's not your homework, so don't be writing that down. This is your homework. Listen. I want you to think about this all week long. Why is it that Jesus used such a repulsive and offensive analogy? We understand it's an analogy. We understand it's describing belief. We understand it's describing faith, the type of belief that he's been describing. But why did he use such a repulsive analogy? He spoke of eating his flesh in verse 51, and then the Jews misunderstood that. They got hostile. You could tell that the, the crowd is beginning to turn. They've gone from grumbling in verse 2 to hostility, or, or verse 41, grumbling in verse 41 to hostility in verse 52. Why did Jesus press, press it? Why use such a repulsive? Why use such a gory? Why use such a crass analogy, especially one that would be so offensive to Jews, the idea of eating flesh and drinking blood? Why did he use that analogy and not another? I'll give you a hint. One of the answers to that question has to do with when the discourse was given. When was the discourse given? Not what time of day, what time of year. There's a connection there. And I'll let that for you to, leave that for you to discover. And if uh, you don't discover it by next week, then don't come next week. I'm kidding. Come back. All right. Let's bow together. Our Father, we are thankful that you have spelled these things out for us, that our hearts might be transformed by your word. We want to be reminded again that true faith, true saving faith, is not a matter of our confession of certain intellectual doctrines and certain things that we merely have in our heads, but that our hearts and our confidence and our trust might rely fully on Christ. You have provided him for a sacrifice for our sins in order that we might be forgiven and that sacrifice remains unappropriated by us if we do not receive it by true faith. And so we pray, O oh God, that our hearts might be changed by these things and that we might be reminded again of how important this is. We ask that you would analyze our hearts and show us the weaknesses of our faith, reveal to those who are here the nature of their faith, if it is true appropriation or if it is merely intellectual assent. We don't want to be like the crowd, those who merely sing about and adore and talk about Christ but we want to be those who have taken him into our hearts and our lives and received him by faith. May you do that work in each one of us. And if there are those here who have never trusted Christ for salvation, may you be glorified by bringing them to your son, that you might draw them to him and grant them the faith to believe that they might receive and trust him fully for salvation, him and him alone. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for the precious time that we have enjoyed in your word and together this morning. Be glorified now, we ask, as we go from here. May the love of our God and the fellowship of the Spirit and the grace of Christ go with each of us, both now and forever, in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.